Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A bond is set for former President Trump in Georgia, but these piled on indictments don't appear to be sinking his popularity. We'll tell you what an Iowa poll finds about Trump's lead. President Biden in Maui, what he announces as over 800 people are still missing after deadly wildfires swept through the Hawaiian island. FEMA's natural disaster budget nears its limit. During this record year for weather catastrophes, can Congress step in to help? A double whammy, a hurricane and earthquake hit at the same time in Southern California. Residents are now cleaning up in the aftermath of these natural disasters. A temporary restraining order on YouTube. That's what RFK Jr. is now asking for in his case against Google. More hearings are expected as the presidential primary draws closer. And an arrest warrant is out after a convicted January 6th defendant disappears. The self-proclaimed Proud Boy was under house arrest. Now the FBI is looking for him. A bond is set for former President Trump in the Georgia indictment accusing him and 18 others of a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. NTD's Melina Weiskopf joins us from the Fulton County Jail where Trump is expected to surrender this week. Melina, what can you tell us about Trump's bond? Good evening. So the Fulton County Superior Court did file Trump's bail conditions, including specific conditions to meant to prevent witness intimidation that includes through social media posts. We'll show you exactly what that court filing shows. So there's a total of $200,000 set for Trump's bail. That's for all 13 of his charges. Trump's lawyers were spot as pu published online. Other defendants in this case have also had their bail set. For example, John Eastman, his bail is at $100,000. Other defendants have a much less, pr uh, a less price to pay than Trump, considering they did face less charges than Trump. He has 13 counts. Others have much less. Now, what we're seeing on the ground right now is media anticipating Trump and those other defendants to come here to the Fulton County uh, Jail to surrender here. They have until Friday to do so, but we do do expect Secret Service to work with the district attorney's office and the sheriff's office here at the Fulton County Jail to make arrangements for how this arraignment and booking process will ultimately unfold later this week. And even as former President Trump is dealing with this fourth indictment now, this isn't sinking his popularity. That's according to a recent poll. Voters in Iowa appear to grow more fond of Trump. Melina, tell us about this poll. Yeah, so that Iowa poll is very important because Iowa is the first state where GOP voters will head to make their pick for the GOP nominee. That poll shows that Trump's lead actually grew by five percentage points since this Georgia indictment took place. So right now it shows Trump at 43 percent, DeSantis at 19 percent. Other candidates didn't even make it uh, in the double digits. We'll read you Trump's quote that he wrote on Truth Social responding to that Iowa poll. So he said that I got the farmers $28 billion from China, the USMCA trade deal, and many others. 
Now, as far as how those other presidential candidates are responding to this indictment, DeSantis and Tim Scott, they've responded along the lines of, as they've always responded for the first three indictments, saying that this is an example of the weaponization of government. It's the criminalization of politics. Meanwhile, former, former Vice President Mike Pence has a different reaction, just saying that the Georgia election was not stolen, claiming that he had no right to overturn the January 6th, uh, the election on January 6th when he was in Congress. Now, as for Vivek Ramaswamy, he has a very solid take on this, similar to his previous responses. I asked him how he feels about this Georgia indictment. He told me that he isn't, you know, he, this isn't how he wants to win. He, he even accused other Republican candidates of trying to use this to their advantage to get rid of Trump. Let's take a look at what Vivek told me. I'm polling second in many of these national polls. It would be easier for me if Trump were eliminated from competition. I think that's what many Republicans, many in the Republican donor establishment are quietly rooting for as they prop up the other super PAC puppets. That is not how I want to win. I also asked Vivek about his thoughts on Trump not attending that first GOP debate this week. He said he has no problem with that. So we could expect to see Trump post an interview with uh, Tucker Carlson on X, where Carlson has published much of his other content. However, neither Trump nor Tucker Carlson have publicly confirmed that this is what they're planning to do. Back to you. Thanks for that update, Melina. And in Trump's 2020 election case, special counsel Jack Smith is pushing back against the Trump team's request for an April 2026 trial date. The DOJ filed its response earlier today. Smith claimed that the 2026 date would deny the public its right to a speedy trial. Lawyers for the former president had objected to Smith's proposed trial date of January 2, 2024. In filing papers, Trump's team had claimed the Department of Justice's objective was to, quote, deny President Trump and his counsel a fair ability to prepare for trial. One of the reasons they gave was the 11.5 million pages of evidence that Smith's office provided. They compared the evidence to reading the entirety of Tolstoy's War and Peace cover to cover 78 times a day, every day from now until jury selection or nearly 100,000 pages per day. Smith said in response that Trump's lawyers exaggerated the challenge of reviewing it effectively. The trial date is expected to be set by U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin at a hearing on August 28th. And President Biden touring wildfire damage in Maui today as hundreds of people remain missing. That's as Biden's initial response to the fires remains under scrutiny. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. Nearly two weeks after wildfires swept through the Hawaiian island of Maui, and President Biden on Monday pauses summer vacation to visit the island, touring damage and pledging strong federal aid. Local officials now say the fires have killed at least 114 people and that 850 others are still missing. Biden vowed on Sunday to do everything in his power to help Maui recover. And while there, Biden's seeing the burned-out areas firsthand and talking with survivors and getting briefed by local officials. But Republicans and some Democrats are criticizing Biden for his initial responses to the wildfires, such as... And Biden's main 2024 rival, Donald Trump, also took aim at Biden's lack of comments. It is a disgraceful thing that 
Joe Biden refuses to help or comment on the tragedy in Maui. But the White House defends the president by emphasizing that he's been talking with local officials and leading a whole-of-government effort to respond to the disaster. It asks that it took him some time to visit because it did not want to interfere with emergency response efforts. Later tonight, Biden will return from Hawaii to Lake Tahoe, Nevada, where he will remain through Saturday for the rest of his summer vacation. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. And a hurricane and earthquake hit Los Angeles on the same day. These natural disasters brought flooding and disruption to southwest U.S. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports. Double disaster strikes. An earthquake hits Southern California amid tropical storm Hillary. There was some flooding, landslides and shaking. Here's the aftermath of such unforeseen events. Tropical storm Hillary hit Mexico and then moved across the southwestern part of the United States. This caused flooding, landslides and people needing to be rescued from water. And when the storm drenched Southern California on Sunday afternoon, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake also shook parts of Los Angeles. Many people reported shaking across the area with smaller aftershocks. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office said there weren't any reports of major damage or injuries. Meanwhile, Hillary weakened as it made landfall over the weekend, but it's still expected to bring two to four inches of rain to many places on Monday. Hillary took a surprise turn and veered off course, hitting Dodger Stadium, leaving it completely flooded. Lots of places were already getting flooded, and there were many reports of rocks and mudslides knocking down trees and creating power outages. Many flights were canceled, and many people lost electricity over the weekend. The Los Angeles Unified School District said all campuses would be closed on Monday, and San Diego schools postponed the first day of classes from Monday to Tuesday. The dynamic conditions that kept shifting on us with some degree of unpredictability specific to rainfall, the possibility of flash floods, the possibility of mudslides, uh, not knowing uh, where that would occur or when across uh, our large school system, which spans 700 square miles, put us in a position of making the right decision yesterday. Transportation also seems back to schedule. As we have begun service today, we're opening with our normal service on both bus and rail. Uh, there may be occasional minimal delays due to localized flooding, but we are operating our normal, our normal schedule. California Governor Gavin Newsom also declared a state of emergency. The Federal Emergency Management Agency say that they have officials ready with food, water and other help. Hurricane Hillary is moving towards Nevada and Arizona and is expected to bring heavy rain to those areas as well. Officials continue to urge residents to take the storm warnings seriously. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, Los Angeles. And as FEMA continues to help victims of natural disasters, the agency is now battling a storm of its own. Their disaster relief fund could run out of money this month. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Oh my God. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has been busy this year with natural disasters, and the cost of relief efforts are now catching up with them. FEMA's disaster relief fund is now expected to run out of money this month. Through July of this year, there have been 15 weather-related disasters that have each caused over a billion dollars worth of damage. Those disasters include a flooding event in California, several severe storms in the central and southern United States, and a winter storm in the northeast. 
And these events don't include the Maui fires in Hawaii, which Governor Josh Green says could cost $6 billion. When asked about FEMA's budget concerns last week, Chief Deanne Criswell said this. Uh, again, we have enough funding uh, to support the, the ongoing response efforts because we take events like this into consideration. Um, but uh, it would delay, if we don't have additional funding, it would delay uh, some of the recovery projects and push them into next year. FEMA's dwindling relief funds could also affect longer-term recovery projects in Maui and other weather-related disasters that may arise in the future. In particular, Hurricane Hillary, which has been downgraded to a tropical storm, could soon bring severe flooding to the west. And the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season is soon to start on September 10th. Congress is set to reconvene after Labor Day, which is September 4th, and lawmakers will likely vote on a supplemental funding bill that will allocate $12 billion for natural disasters. But not everyone is for it. Some Republicans oppose the bill because it includes an additional $24 billion for Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. So what caused Hawaii's wildfires to get out of control? Earlier today, we heard from environmental attorney Steve Malloy for his insights. Steve, welcome. Thanks for coming on our show. You've been vocal about recent government failures in Hawaii when it comes to disaster preparedness. Could you elaborate on your concerns about the state government's response to the wildfires and what you believe needs to change? Well, thanks for having me, Stefania. Um, you know, the number one job of government, the reason we pay all the tax we do is for public safety. We expect government to keep us safe. And that was not the case in Maui uh, last week with the wildfires. Um, the government was well aware of the possibility of wildfires. Uh, it knew strong winds were coming. It knew that power lines could come down and start wildfires in grass that were was especially prone to wildfires. And despite knowing that, um, it, it offered no warning to the residents of Maui. It provided no guidance to them, uh, even in their emergency uh, procedures guides. Um, and it, the, the sirens never went off to warn people. Uh, when the firefighters got there to put fires out, there was no water in the hydrants because the government, uh, you know, they, they have some special reverence for water there. They didn't want to use the water. It took five hours to get the water released to the fire department in, in one case. Um, and so the whole catastrophe uh, just seems to me to be on the shoulders of government. And instead, what we're seeing is, you know, government blaming climate change, which is clearly not at fault here. Um, we have government that is... Uh, going to investigate itself, which is never a good idea. Uh, and it, we can expect them to blame climate change again. <laughs> uh, this whole thing has been a disaster. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really government's fault. And so how do you suggest navigating these discussions about climate change while acknowledging the critical aspects of disaster mitigation? Well, I would first investigate to see what happened. Um, you know, we know climatically what, what was going on, what weather-wise, what was going on. There was a, you know, a hurricane that was causing strong winds. Uh, the grasses were dry, as they are at this time, uh, but temperatures were not particularly warm. The ground was not particularly dry. Um, 
And, and so there's no real climate angle here. But, you know, putting putting that aside, let's just, um, you know, look at what the government did. Then you can look at climate if you want. And then you can um, go back, you know, if we had an invest independent investigator who we could trust, uh, we could let, you know, the decision lie with them. But instead, we're going to have a government that is anxious to uh, exculpate itself uh, and anxious to blame something that, you know, it's very much invested in starting with, you know, climate alarmism. Um, so, I, you know, I don't I don't think that we can expect a fair shake from from, you know, the government investigating itself. Well, that is a concerning um, proposition. But we do know that policymakers will be trying to learn from this. What suggestions do you have to ensure a comprehensive approach? Well, it seems to me that government has forgotten, uh, not just in, in the case of Maui, but uh, in many places, that their first duty is public safety. It's, it's not doing that right now. It's more concerned with long-term political agendas. Uh, in the case of uh, Maui, you know, we have, it's interesting to read, like the, the utility, for example, more concerned about wildfires starting in the year 2100 from global warming than wildfires started this year. Now, I can't entirely blame the utility because um, the utility proposed to the to the Hawaiian government a $100 million, $190 million plan to mitigate wildfire risk. Uh, it did that more than a year ago, but the government hasn't done anything with it. So this is just a colossal failure of people who should know what their responsibilities are, but don't, and certainly don't act on them. Steve Malloy, thank you so much. Great to hear your insights. Thanks, Stefania. Could YouTube be ordered not to censor Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? NTD's Jason Blair brings us more from a hearing today in San Francisco. We know that RFK Jr. is challenging President Biden in the 2024 election, but he's also suing Google and YouTube during his campaign. I'm outside a U.S. courthouse in San Francisco where prosecutors want a restraining order on the tech giant. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did not attend Monday's hearing, which was set before Judge Trina Thompson. Kennedy initially filed for a temporary restraining order on August 2nd against Google and YouTube. On Monday, the judge held the beginning of the case and will continue with a slew of hearings. Kennedy, a Democratic candidate running for the 2024 election, accuses that Google worked with the federal government on misinformation policies, censoring political opponents and their videos. Kennedy's lawyer told the Epic Times, These kind of motions are very hard to win, but we, um, we think, given the importance of the political issues, that, it's, um, uh, that she should think seriously about granting it, and I hope she does grant it. According to the complaint, YouTube removed a video of Kennedy's March 2023 speech at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, posted by Manchester Public Television. In a true free market, we would be forced to properly value our natural resources. The lawsuit claims that only a portion of that speech dealt with vaccines and much of it was on politics and Kennedy's career instead. A Google spokesperson has told NTD, YouTube applies its community guidelines independently, transparently, and consistently, regardless of political viewpoint. These claims are meritless and we look forward to refuting them. According to YouTube's policy, it doesn't allow content that spreads medical misinformation that contradicts guidance from local health authorities or the World Health Organization. 
RFK Jr. is known to speak about COVID origins and health concerns regarding COVID-19 shots. In San Francisco, California, Jason Blair, NTD News. YouTube, meanwhile, is stepping up its content moderation. The platform is introducing a new policy aimed at content it considers to be medical misinformation. The company said it will remove anything that contradicts the World Health Organization or other health authorities. The platform outlines three misinformation categories on its webpage, prevention, treatment, and denial. So what do these terms mean? Prevention covers questioning the official narratives on vaccine efficacies and the transmission of certain diseases. For treatment, content promoting practices not approved by the WHO will also be banned. And as for denial, YouTube says anything that denies the existence of certain health conditions will be taken down as well. The new policy is being criticized for suppressing free speech online. Author Michael Schellenberger said that YouTube is becoming a, quote, a propaganda platform. But this isn't the first such policy. Back in 2021, YouTube said it removed more than one million videos from its platform due to what it called dangerous coronavirus information. And another major upheaval in Hunter Biden's federal tax misdemeanor case. Three lawyers representing him have moved to withdraw from the case. The three attorneys are Brian McManus, Matthew Salerno, and Timothy McCartan of Latham and Watkins LLP. They filed the motion to withdraw last Friday, and the judge approved it today. They didn't give a reason, but said Hunter Biden is aware and that others with the company are continuing his defense. Hunter Biden's lead criminal defense attorney, Christopher Clark, also withdrew from the case last week. And the judge dismissed Hunter Biden's tax charges in Delaware at the request of the Justice Department. The charges can still be brought in another jurisdiction, such as California or Washington, D.C. The move opens the way for new action from the special prosecutor. And one of the Proud Boys has gone missing just days before his sentencing hearing. Now a federal judge has released a warrant for his arrest. He was convicted in connection with the January 6 Capitol breach. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. The FBI has released a wanted poster for Christopher John Worrell. Worrell is a self-identified Proud Boys member convicted in May on charges in connection with the January 6 Capitol breach. He was scheduled to be sentenced last Friday but went missing earlier in the week. Prosecutors had asked a judge to sentence him to 14 years. But the sentencing was canceled and a bench warrant for his arrest issued. Worrell is now wanted for violating conditions of release prior to sentencing. He was convicted of multiple felony charges, including storming the U.S. Capitol building and spraying federal officers with pepper gel spray. The judge ordered his release from jail in November 2021 due to concerns he wasn't getting proper medical treatment. Worrell needed surgery for an injured pinky but complained that it had been delayed. In addition, he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of blood cancer, and had been recommended for a six-month course of chemotherapy and radiation. Worrell had stayed on house arrest in Florida since his release. Phone numbers listed for him and the woman named as his custodian aren't functional. The U.S. Attorney's Office for Washington, D.C. encouraged the public to share any information about his whereabouts. His attorney, William Shipley, declined to comment. As the FBI searches for Worrell, a Minnesota woman who was beaten by Capitol Police pleads guilty to one felony charge. 
Victoria C. White, who was struck in the head, face and neck nearly 40 times on January 6, 2021, pleaded guilty on Thursday to a felony civil disorder and aiding and abetting count. The plea comes as part of an agreement with federal prosecutors. White had been facing a September 14 trial in a D.C. district court on a four-count indictment. Under the plea deal, White now faces zero to six months in jail and a fine ranging from $2,000 to $20,000. White rejected a plea offer in February. She posted on social media last week, I took the plea, no going back this time. If you only knew what these two years have been like. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And next, a judge handed baby murderer Lucy Letby a life sentence today, making her only the fourth woman in the UK history to be told she will never be released from prison. The judge at Manchester Crown Court said she was cruel, calculated and cynical and had no remorse. She was convicted of murdering seven babies and trying to kill six more while working in the Countess of Chester Hospital's neonatal unit between 2015 and 2016. This makes her the most prolific child serial killer in modern British history. The judge sentenced Slutby to a whole life order for each offense. More than a dozen relatives of victims sat in the public gallery for the hearing, and eight jurors returned to see the sentencing. Coming up, Texas Governor Greg Abbott hosting a group of governors at the southern border. They highlight the toll of the border crisis on their states. And can artificial intelligence predict the questions that will appear on your next exam? Find out what one company is saying about its latest AI product when we come back. of governors went on a tour today to witness the crisis unfolding at the southern border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who invited them, held a press conference on border security at the border city of Eagle Pass, Texas. But us governors, we're not going to stand idly by and see this disaster wrecked upon the United States. And that's why they have come here and why they are sending their personnel here, because they know that we as states share an obligation. And that's a step up and respond to this unparalleled catastrophe caused by Joe Biden. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem were on the tour. They each highlighted the toll of the illegal immigration crisis and the fentanyl crisis on their home states. And they thanked Abbott for his efforts to secure the border. The Texas governor said that the states are fully authorized by the U.S. Constitution to secure the border. He highlighted that the U.S.-Mexico border is now the deadliest land border in the entire world, according to the United Nations. Over 850 people have died crossing the border last year alone. And in New York State, a public college is kicking 44 illegal immigrants out of its dorms before the school year starts. That's after parents expressed concern over campus safety. The State University of New York at Buffalo began to house illegal immigrants back in May when a nearby facility ran out of space. The plan was to allow them to stay until August. 
Now that the time is up, the local shelter is looking to sign another agreement to extend the stay. But the university decided against the extension following backlash from parents. The parents reportedly spoke up after two illegal immigrants were charged with sex crimes in a town 10 miles from the campus. Some activists criticized the school's decision, calling it, quote, discriminatory against these asylum seekers. Of the 44 illegal immigrants, most are from Africa, several others are from Colombia, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, and one is from Iraq. Can a housing market with already sky-high prices get even more expensive? That's the question that many analysts are now asking. And the answer depends on an array of factors. Earlier today, I spoke with the NTD Business's Don Ma about the outlook for the housing market. Don, thanks for coming on our show. Great to see you here. What is happening in the housing market recently? Well, Steph, uh, mortgage rates are the highest they've been in 21 years. This is according to data from Freddie Mac. And it seems like home buyers are facing increasing costs. Some housing experts are even warning that rates could keep climbing toward 8%. That, now, that's very high, Steph. Um, now, we can't assume that just because inflation has moved in the right direction, that mortgage rates will go down right away. The Fed's rates are still high, inventory is still constrained, and prices are still elevated. So these three things are putting a lot of pressure on the housing sector, it seems like. And what's the impact of all this? So as, as rates for a fixed rate 30-year mortgage have surged, payments by a home buyer of a median-priced home who, let's say, put down 20% as, as a down payment, the price has risen by more than $1,200 a month. So think about that, $1,200. This has pushed uh, buying a home out of reach for many people. Buyers who are still in the market are seeing low available inventory. And here's just some numbers for you, Steph. Median home prices hit their second highest level on record in June at $410,200. So, you know, it's, it's still a very difficult um, housing market. So then, Don, what's the outlook for the housing market in the near term? All right, here's what you need to know, Steph. Minutes from the last Fed meeting showed continued concerns about inflation, and it's suggesting another rate hike may be on the table this year. Um, that, along with Fitch's downgrade of U.S. debt, we all remember that earlier, um, it's putting upward pressure on long-term borrowing rates. And this week, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasuries rose over 4.2%, which is the highest level in over a decade. And that's important because are we going to see the 10-year go up to 5%? If we do, mortgage rates may rise to 8%. Um, and the reason for that is mortgage rates have a relationship with the 10-year Treasury. So if the 10-year moves, so will mortgage rates. So how did we get here, after all? So Fed officials hiked uh, interest rates to the highest level in 22 years. Um, the Fed does not set the interest rates that borrowers pay on mortgages directly, but its actions does influence the mortgage rate. Uh, mortgage rates tend to track the 10-year 10 uh, 10 treasuries, as I mentioned earlier. So when treasury yields go up, 
so do mortgage rates. And that's the relationship. But I think there could be some good news. And that is the 10-year yield will have to come down eventually. And the Fed will eventually have to cut rates. And when that does happen, we could see mortgage rates come down. Um, but of course, the question is when that will be. All right, Don, thank you so much. Great to hear your insights. Thank you, Steph. Artificial intelligence that predicts your upcoming test questions. Over 100,000 people have registered for it, even though there hasn't been any traditional marketing of the program. NTD's Colin Fredrickson speaks with the company's founders. Artificial intelligence will soon predict upcoming test questions, helping students study what's likely to actually be on their exams. One of the major reasons why students fail their exams isn't necessarily because they haven't studied but because they've studied the wrong thing. Rami Akili is the CEO of Umaker, a generative AI firm focused on students. Umaker helps students write their essays with AI. The program to predict exam questions is their latest product. Akili says it will help students study the right things. We look at historical course material. We look at material that the student uploads to the product. We look at the syllabus. We look at the whole bunch of things, use that data, to make our best prediction as to what's likely to come up with the uh, on the exam. Umaker has already received over $500,000 in pre-seed funding. More than 100,000 people have subscribed to the new product, despite no traditional marketing efforts. Millions of students globally are doing this. Like, you know, they'll try and look for, um, uh, you know, patterns. They'll try and look for uh, areas where um, you know, there's uh, you know, a potential likelihood of something coming up. Umaker co-founder Abbas Maladina says their AI program is just streamlining what students are already trying to do. It's so helpful if they can practice the same way that they're going to be tested. And while some teachers will release previous exams, not all teachers do. Brian Stewart is the author of Barron's Digital SAT Study Guide. He says AI-generated exams sound like a wonderful supplement, but he's curious about how AI is going to create more sophisticated questions. It wouldn't be that difficult for AI to create a more formulaic question, like which of these events occurred first chronologically. However, it could be more difficult for the AI to make more sophisticated questions, like which of these scientific findings would most undermine the hypothesis of the researcher. Umaker is aiming to release the beta version by the end of the year. In the meantime, anyone can register to get early access. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, we look ahead to Wednesday's Republican presidential primary debate. Who's coming? Who's not? What strategies could work and which could backfire? A beloved San Francisco retailer is speaking up about the city's deteriorating conditions. It urges the mayor and governor to take action, worried that it could see its last holiday season. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. President Biden is visiting the island of Maui following the devastating wildfires. The death toll is now at 114, with 850 people still unaccounted for. 
A 5.1 magnitude earthquake struck about 80 miles northwest of downtown Los Angeles. On the same day, Tropical Storm Hillary made landfall in Southern California. A judge in Georgia sets former President Trump's bond at $200,000 and restricts his communications about the case. This is while Trump confirms that he will skip the first GOP primary debate on Wednesday. The first Republican presidential primary debate is just around the corner, and former President Trump, still way ahead in the polls, says he won't be there. Will that help or hinder him? And what should we expect as we look to Wednesday's debate under very unusual circumstances? I spoke with Newsweek's senior editor-at-large and podcast host Josh Hammer for his take. Josh, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. In a recent Epic Times article, you said that it's too early to know whether former President Trump will dominate the 2024 Republican primary, despite his strong polling. Could you elaborate on the factors that you see at play here? Sure. So first of all, it is August 2023. I mean, while you and I and many others who are in this business full time, who are political junkies in general, while many folks like that are obsessing over the horse race narratives and the day to day daily polling and whatnot, the vast majority of Americans have tuned out for politics for the summer. They've been on the beach. They're trying to go on, take their family on a quick little vacation, things like that. The first televised debate in earnest is really the time when I think the median Republican primary voter is going to start to tune into this thing. It happens to also be right around the same time, of course, that President Trump has just had his fourth criminal indictment. So the narrative is who knows whether it's changing, but the facts on the ground are, are, are at least changing very quickly. So this is not the time to write this thing off, that's for sure. And how do you think Trump's decision to skip the first Republican presidential debate will influence the dynamics of that debate and the strategies of other candidates? So it's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it is a curse because the way to take down Leviathan most in its most straightforward fashion is to actually take a punch, is to kind of take down Goliath, if you're David, by actually slinging that slingshot and going for the jugular or so. That's the most straightforward way. But, you know, it's also a blessing because Hopefully that will give these other candidates more time to talk about themselves. What are their plans to actually save America, to fight the Chinese Communist Party in the foreign sphere, to uh, to do X, Y, Z things? So with, without the elephant in the room actually being there, with an elephant not being in the room, so to speak, hopefully that, by contrast, will then give these candidates more time to talk about the future as opposed to relitigating the past, talking about January 6, classified documents in Mar-a-Lago and all these other various legal maladies that the former president has found himself in. And what should each candidate try to accomplish or focus on during Wednesday's debate? So every candidate is going to have his or her own goal, obviously. But above all, what these non-Trump candidates are trying to do is to establish themselves as the viable, the sole and exclusive, ideally non-Trump challenger. That clearly is what these fellow candidates are trying to do in advance of the Iowa caucuses, which are you know still almost five months away at this point. They're really trying to solidify both the grassroots and the donor base by trying to present themselves to both of those constituencies that they are the logical one to dethrone Trump and to be the, the logical inheritor of his America first, more nationalist, populist movement. So if you're on DeSantis, for example, who you know, 
based on pretty much every polling that I have seen is the number two candidate behind Donald Trump. He has to try to kind of inspire people. He uh, he has the policy chops. I live here in Florida. I live under his leadership every day. It's it's quite good. But he needs to he needs to be hopeful and inspire people and craft a message that he is the guy who can actually take America from the brink and then take it back. So trying to kind of instill a sense of optimism and in a real kind of narrative sense of wanting to see that person succeed and what they can do to be a part of it. For other candidates like Chris Christie, Mike Pence, I think their only kind of outside shot would be to kind of really just go full anti-Trump. That seems to be kind of their their modus operandi so far. Uh, someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, I think, would have to kind of show people that he is not a serial flip-flopper and instead would have to show that he actually has substance, that he actually stands by what he means. So it's going to depend on each candidate. But they're really, at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is show everyone that they are the one non-Trump challenger who is viable heading into Iowa in almost five months. We'll have to see how it all plays out. Thank you so much, Josh Hammer. Always great to have you on. Thank you. A longtime luxury retailer in San Francisco has sent an open letter to the mayor and governor about the city's deterioration. The owner says that because of current conditions in the city, the store may have to close after this year. Gums in San Francisco is a 166-year-old luxury retailer located downtown near Union Square. In an open letter to Mayor London Breed and Governor Gavin Newsom, the chairman of the store wrote, Today, as we prepare for our 166th holiday season at 250 Post Street, we fear this may be our last because of the profound erosion of this city's current conditions. He continues by saying the city, quote, suffers from a tyranny of the minority that started with COVID policies advising people to work from home, leaving offices empty. After that, San Francisco allowed the homeless to occupy sidewalks, use illegal drugs, and harass the public, making it unsafe, unlivable, and unwelcoming to tourists. In an interview with Fox, Chachas challenged the mayor to swap jobs for 180 days, saying she'd see a lot of change. Either incapable of understanding it or unwilling to actually make the policy changes that are needed to make it a workable environment. So. He asked city and state leaders to clean the city and return San Francisco to the icon it was once before. And still to come, Russia and China are looking to advance their agendas at the upcoming BRICS summit. What can we expect from the meeting? And in college football, a prominent coach is suspended. See how many games Jim Harbaugh will miss when we come back. Expansion of the BRICS group is a likely focus at a summit in South Africa this week. That says the bloc looks to challenge the West for geopolitical dominance. Here's a preview. Leaders of countries that account for more than a quarter of the global economy are set to meet in South Africa. Up for discussion at the BRICS summit starting on August 22nd, how to turn this loose club of nations into a geopolitical force capable of challenging the West's dominance in global affairs. BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. The leaders of those countries will be in physical attendance, with one notable exception. That's Russian President Vladimir Putin, who faces an international arrest warrant over alleged war crimes in Ukraine though he is expected to attend virtually. 
Few details have emerged about what BRICS leaders plan to discuss. However, expansion is expected to be high on the agenda. Some 40 nations have shown an interest in joining, either formally or informally, officials have said, including Saudi Arabia, Argentina and Egypt. However, there could be tensions. China wants to enlarge BRICS quickly as it tussles with the United States for geopolitical influence. Brazil is resisting, fearing the already unwieldy club could see its stature diluted. Russia is keen to bring in new members as it seeks friends amid its diplomatic isolation over Ukraine. Its most important African ally, South Africa, is on the same page. India is on the fence. What unites the bloc, though, is skepticism about a world order they see as serving the interests of the United States and its rich country allies. BRICS nations are keen to project themselves as alternative development partners to the West. The bloc's new development bank wants to de-dollarize finance and offer an alternative to the IMF and the World Bank. However, it's only approved $33 billion of loans in nearly a decade. That's about a third of the amount the World Bank committed to disbursing just last year. The NDB has also been hobbled by sanctions on Russia. South African officials say talk of a BRICS currency, mooted by Brazil earlier this year as an alternative to dollar dependence, is off the table. Development of BRICS. Nevertheless, South Africa's foreign minister, Nalendi Pandor, has said BRICS wants to show leadership, particularly in terms of the development and inclusion of the global south in multilateral systems. The theme of the Johannesburg summit is BRICS and Africa. That emphasizes how the bloc can build ties on a continent increasingly becoming a theater for competition between world powers. Officials in Brazil, China and South Africa said climate change may come up at the summit, but indicated it wouldn't be a priority. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with some breaking news from college football. That's right, Steph. The University of Michigan is imposing a three-game suspension for head coach Jim Harbaugh to start the season, a result stemming from alleged infractions that happened during the COVID-19 dead period. The suspension is in lieu of whatever possible sanctions the NCAA may eventually hand down that might not be until next season. Harbaugh will not be on the sidelines for games against East Carolina, Bowling Green and UNLV, but will be able to coach the team during the week. Elsewhere in college football, the AP's preseason All-America team has been announced and reigning Heisman Trophy winner Caleb Williams of USC leads the way. The junior quarterback who threw 42 touchdown passes to just five interceptions last year was joined on the first team by Ohio State wide receiver Marvin Harrison Jr. and Michigan running back Blake Corum, among others. The trio were among five returning first teamers from last year. This season kicks off this Saturday with a doubleheader as Notre Dame plays Navy, followed by USC hosting San Jose State. And in tennis news, the US Open doesn't start for another week, but fans got a taste of what could be in store yesterday as Novak Djokovic avenged his Wimbledon finals loss by topping number one ranked Carlos Alcaraz in a record long match at the finals of the Western and Southern Open. The 36-year-old prevailed with a 5-7-7-6-7-6 win that took 3 hours and 49 minutes, which is the longest best-of-three match this season and the longest ever for an ATP championship. The duel will likely be seated first and second when the US Open starts play next Monday.
And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, nine baseball games are on, including one with a streaking Seattle Mariners, who've won six straight games to put themselves in line for the final wildcard spot. They play at the Chicago White Sox. And finally, in the NFL, the Baltimore Ravens play at the Washington Commanders tonight as the NFL's preseason continues. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, over to you. Thanks, Dave. And next, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please remember that you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephania Cox. Good night.